So finding a comfortable position where your spine can be straight and not rigid. And notice how your legs and hands feel. If they're resting comfortably. and establish mindfulness. And notice how that changes your experience. Bring your attention to your breathing. And follow your in-breath into the body. Bringing your attention inwards. Relaxing as you breathe out. Can notice how the body feels. Might be warm or cold where you are. quiet or noisy, but we just keep bringing the attention inside. Observe the in-breath from the beginning of it. All the way till it ends and becomes an out-breath.
you bring your attention to the top of your head and then gradually move down to the eyes, noticing any tension around your eyes. your nose and cheeks and mouth and chin, any, any tightness or tension, letting it relax. Still aware of the in-breath and the out-breath through their whole cycle. And also the tension in the shoulders. Invite them to relax. Noticing how the abdomen feels, if it's soft or tight. We want to be alert, but we also want to be relaxed. We want to be straight, but we also want to be at ease. So using the muscles just enough to hold the posture. And let go of stress, tension. Any form of resistance, just breathe. Invite it to fall away. You find you're sitting in a way that's not quite comfortable. You can adjust mindfully. Really taking time, a little bit of time at the beginning to get settled and prepared for meditation. And observing the in-breath coming all the way into the body. You can imagine it filling the entire body. 
Observe the out-breath. Knowing how long it is from the time it starts until you've completely exhaled. Not with any force or pressure, but just the natural outflow of the breath. And as you're breathing in and breathing out, aware of the in-breath and the out-breath and start to feel the whole body breathing. The whole body is feeling the in-breath. The whole body is feeling the out-breath. Aware of the whole body like this and the in-breath and out-breath grounding us. You can notice sensations arising in the body. Pleasant feeling, perhaps. Notice how relaxation feels to you. How it feels in the body when you turn your attention inwards. Noticing an inner silence. even though it might be possible to hear sounds around you, turning our attention inwards changes our experience. Hearing is one of those things that's quite directional based on where we put our attention. 
You can even let my voice fade into the background if you wish. Staying present with your in and out breathing is enough. And allowing the process to unfold on its own. You might feel some tingling somewhere in the body, some warmth. Some sort of pleasant feeling. You want to go deeper, feel more of that spiritual energy, then sharpen your focus on your breathing. But also in a way that's kind, gentle.
When you notice pleasant feeling, then put extra attention there. Invite that feeling to spread through the body. As the Buddha said, like working the moisture into the bath powder. So the whole ball of powder is soaked. Work that feeling through the body. Calling it work might be a little misleading because it's really inviting it to spread fueled by the quality of our intention, our mindfulness. And a tone of happiness and relief. Joy. And if there are thoughts passing through the mind, just turn away from them, let them go. Invite the mind to become calm and tranquil. Unlike exterior sounds, thoughts can fade into the background.
as we notice our breath, have our attention on our breathing, our body, our feeling. Feelings of joy, feelings of contentment, relaxation. Thoughts comes back, if thoughts come back, then we can remind ourselves that that's not important right now. Right now is the time to rest in mindfulness and awareness. Happiness joy, tranquility, stillness and lucidity of mind.
Hello, everyone, again. So today, um, I'm going to respond to a, a request for a topic of talking about the, the five khandas, and I'll explain what that means for anyone who's new to this. But um, in particular, today we're going to talk about the body and how the, the Buddha encouraged us to use it and think of it. I'm going to share my notes with you. Maybe in case, you know, if you're a, an auditory learner, you don't have to look. <laughs> if you're a visual learner, you might want to see them. So... Here they are. So when we think about the five aggregates, it's a funny term. You know, at first when we come to Buddhism, we don't quite know what, what that means. But the Buddha, as most of you know, was trying to... <clears throat> trying to help people see the way things actually are. And, and so much of our suffering comes from seeing things in a way that isn't actually realistic. So one thing to, um, to, re to reflect on is when I think of me, who I am, what is it that, that I think is included in that? And the Buddha talked about what's in Pali called the khandas, in Sanskrit it's skandhas. And that word khanda has a few different meanings, but one of them is heaps. He's kind of trying to take those things that we think of as the self, as ourselves, the things we identify with, and just kind of sort them into heaps. I think of it like sorting laundry you got the whites and the colors and the bulky items or whatever, you know. And, um, and so one heap of, of things, of <laughs> concepts, <laughs> things that um, that's very easy to have a sense of is form. Rupa is the Pali word. And it's the body and it's material objects. It's those things that are, you know, the tangible parts. And then the Buddha, of course, also talked about feeling. We identify. These are the things we identify with and cling to. Feeling on our mental processes of perception and mental activity, you can see the word sankara gets translated in different ways, as you know. Mental formations, mental activity, volitional formations, because there is an element of, of um, some kind of choice or just plain choices. And consciousness. And I'm going to talk about these things uh, in the next couple of meetings. Um, <clears throat> unless something else uh, interrupts this series, but 
I'm going to talk about these things in a bit more detail as we go along. But just, you know, having that sense of, you know, most of you are really familiar with this kind of framework, but how do you relate to it in, a, in an actual way, in your own mind, in your own life? Because if we're not free from suffering entirely, then we're still clinging to these kind of elements or aspects of what kind of forms up to look like a self, our self. So I'm going to look at a little bit of what Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about in his introduction to the Kanda Sanyuta. So in the link to discourses in the Sanyuta Nikaya, as you know, if you have any familiarity with it, there's a, a lot of books, um, individual topics of, of suttas or discourses. And, the, and there is a pretty hefty volume for you know, addressing these five aggregates of clinging, these five heaps of clinging, the kanda, samyutta. And in the introduction, you can read here, this is what Bhikkhu Bodhi said about the, the five aggregates. Examination of the five aggregates plays a critical role in the Buddha's teaching for at least four reasons. Said first, because the five aggregates are the ultimate referent of the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. And he gives a reference there of Samyutta Nikaya 56.13. And since all four truths revolve around suffering, understanding the aggregates is essential for understanding the four noble truths as a whole. So to really understand that basic framework, framework that the Buddha came to on the night of his enlightenment of the four noble truths, recognizing that there is suffering. And you know, the way I think is best to use that in a practical, immediate way is to notice the suffering we experience in the present moment. Or if we're experiencing suffering, that we acknowledge this is suffering. And then the Buddha said, we, we should understand that suffering. And then when we understand that suffering to acknowledge and recognize, oh, we understand it. So it's the first noble truth. And these heaps um, that represent maybe in our minds as a whole who we are, this is really where we feel the suffering. And we suffer because we want our body to be different than it is. We don't want this pain or we don't want to engage in, um, you know, the, the kinds of things we have to experience because of the body. Even those things that come through the senses like heat and cold and noise and anything else that comes, you know, basically through the senses of the body can cause us suffering. But it's like the real cause, the Buddha will tell us, is how we're looking at things and where we're putting our attention. And so if we can recognize that this 
suffering uh, can be, um, you know, if we recognize that the cause of the suffering is in our attachment or clinging, our seeing things in a way that's not accurate, not the way they actually are, then that suffering can cease even if the conditions don't change. So, and then of course the, the Noble full Path to help us develop in a way that we are able to do this, to really put that, put that clinging and craving down. So that's the first reason if we, if we can appreciate the aggregates and what the Buddha was trying to get at with that, then we can really understand the Four Noble Truths. Secondly, because the five aggregates are the objective domain of clinging. So these, the Buddha said, these, these are the things to notice because these are the things we cling to and as such contribute to the causal origination of future suffering. So we, we not only do we um, suffer in the present moment, but by our actions, our choices, the things that we do say, and even where we put our mind uh, in thought creates future suffering, sets some action in motion that comes back to us in a way to bring more suffering. So we keep on, um, you know, noticing and looking at this kind of thing in order to bring our mind to a point where we can let that suffering go. So third, because the removal of clinging is necessary for the attainment of release, so we have to let go of the clinging. And the clinging um, must be removed from objects around which its tentacles are wrapped, namely the five aggregates. So this is what we're holding on to. And fourth, because the removal of clinging is achieved by wisdom, and the kind of wisdom needed is precisely clear insight into the real nature of the aggregates. So we talk about insight and, you know, it's not just, it's, this is not something we can know entirely by reasoning. And the Buddha said that in many places. This is not just by mere reasoning that we can understand these things, but it's through uh, insight, through wisdom that Develops wisdom develops both by that kind of um, reasoning and you know really absorbing the teachings and living by them, but it also requires or will inevitably involve some breakthroughs. This clear insight into the nature of reality. Does anybody have any questions or comments so far? No? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I do. Okay. Yes. Uh, about how uh, how thinking can lead to suffering, because thinking then leads uh, to an action, or can lead to an action. I'm just thinking, how do you catch that part where uh, 
where you've already entered the thinking that's going to later on. I mean, you can kind of feel, I can kind of feel it. Um, but it almost seems like it happens imperceptibly that suddenly I find myself, you know, in unwholesome thinking or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact that you catch yourself while you're thinking rather than like putting it into action that's a big step already. <laughs> well, I, I often don't, but well, <laughs> looking back, I think, oh, I should have caught it there. <laughs> yeah, this is the process of training the mind. Okay. You know, like there's that sutta um, of removal of distracting thoughts. I mean, it's number 20 in the middle length discourses. And the Buddha talks about those five ways of how to remove distracting or unwanted thoughts and he's talking about in meditation but it's applicable regardless of whether we're meditating or not and then at the very end he says when when you've trained yourself to do this completely then you'll just be able to think what you want to think when you want to think it hmm. and that's pretty cool i'm not there yet i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs> but you can catch it you know, and the best way to catch it is to train ourselves to be aware that when we start suffering, because those, those thoughts that will bring, now you can check on this, and I will too, see if you think this is true, that those thoughts that are unwholesome, that will bring future suffering, maybe are already, um, you know, companion to suffering in the present moment. You know, because, you know, it's like when people are mean to each other, it, they're not happy. You know, there's suffering there. And when we're thinking things that are unwholesome, either we're, either we're craving something, there's something we want, or there's something painful or just uncomfortable, something we want to get rid of. Oh, right. And so maybe, you know, tuning into that more and more, like, am I content? So one of the things, you know, that they do when you ordain is they give you a poly name. So Sentusika, and it's usually something to aspire to. Um, my name means contentment. And if I use my name as a, as a uh, source of reflection, then I can ask myself, you know, right now in this moment, am I content? And if I'm not, why not? And this is, you know, just one way of of a hundred probably that we can train ourselves to notice how how is my mind right now um, and when we think about the body you know so much um, it's so it has such a huge impact on the mind on our thinking and working with the way the body feels and the things it goes through you know how to do that without identifying with the body Can so catch something? it whenever you can. <laughs> yes, go ahead, Denny. Uh, well, that part of like, so this thought doesn't come out of nowhere. The mm -hmm. thought comes out of I'm already suffering. So it feels like I have a choice. I can either, if I'm meditating, just to let the thought go, just pass through me. Or I could sort of examine where that thought come from. Mm -hmm. Am I suffering? Well, but which do I do? Do I just 
Yeah. It's that's a, a good question. And a time for letting go. Yes. And it, and it's, it's something that we learn through experimentation and, and getting to know our own mind and our own patterns, our own history, because sometimes, you know, we, it's very important to really look at a thought or a feeling. I mean, the thoughts bring feelings with them or the other way around almost instantaneously. And, you know, when, when strong feeling arises, it doesn't work. You, any of you have heard me say this many times, it doesn't work to just say, I'm, I'm going to just shove that under the rug because it, you know, requires some attention generally, but it might be a pattern that you've looked at many times and you understand the root of it. You understand your own history. You've, you've seen this, this same experience again and again and, and acknowledging it and determining not to follow it is enough. So it's something we really learn. And a lot of, you know, the thoughts that pop into our mind because this is all because of old karma, right? So things in the past, whatever they were, whatever lifetime it was, doesn't matter but they pop into our mind. That doesn't mean we have responsibility for that, but we have responsibility for what we choose to do with it now. And if some thought about something someone did to us that was mean or you know, unkind or rude or whatever in the past, if that thought pops into our mind and then we, we go with it and we build up a certain resentment or anger, we keep, we keep something alive that's, actually really suffering, <laughs> you know, then, then we've, then we've put energy into it. Then we create new karma for the future. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Denny. Mm -hmm. Any other comments, questions? Okay. So when we talk about the body, um, there, the, the sutta that I'm showing a very short snippet of on the screen right now is um, the second discourse that the Buddha gave after his enlightenment on not-self. It's called the Anatalakana Sutta. And it's also in this same section of the linked discourses on Yuta Nikaya 22 is the, is the book on the, on the aggregates. And this is number 59. And this is Venerable Sujato's translation. And I just clipped out the part at the very beginning um, or pretty close to the very beginning on the body or form. So when you, when you read form or rupa, the translation of rupa, you know, remember that it is all form, all different things that have, you know, made up of the four elements. We're going to see that in a minute. You know, um, you know, your phone and your car and your house and your partner has a body and your body and all of that stuff falls into this category. 
So thus have I heard at one time the Blessed One was dwelling at Benares in the Deer Park. Then he addressed the group of five monks. He said, form, monks, the word here is bhikkhus, that's the Pali, is not self. So this is not a self. This is not, um, and we're going to get into, well, what did the Buddha mean by a self? But we can know that in our own experience. Who do I, who or what do I think I am, really? What, am, what is it that I um, identify with? And he's saying, it's not the body. The body isn't you. Um, if it were a self, then it wouldn't lead to affliction or suffering. So it's an interesting concept. What is a self? You know, here might contrast this or think of the idea of a soul that goes on through lifetime after lifetime or goes to heaven or hell or whatever we think happens. Some lasting element that we can say is really me. And the Buddha says, the body's not it. And you should be able to say to something that's actually self, I want you to be this way. And then it becomes that, that you'd have control over it. This was a concept. This can be a concept that's hard to understand. Let my form be like this or not like that. Let my body be like this or not like that. But since we can't do that and it leads to suffering, one is not able to say, let my form be like this or like that. It's not, it's not a self. It's not something to identify with. And if we think about how much we actually identify with the body, how concerned we are if the body becomes ill or if it um, doesn't look the way we want it to look or we know that it's going to die and we feel like I'm losing myself. Sometimes I've seen people who very strongly recommended that they get some kind of surgery to move some, remove some part of their body that's diseased and they don't want to remove it because they feel like it's going to be losing some part of themselves. So the Buddha is really inviting us to recognize that this isn't the right stuff to identify with. It falls apart and, and I, to identify with the body in this way just leads to enormous suffering. Elisa. Yes, um, this explanation is kind of puzzling to me. We were talking about it in Sutta study too, I think. And um, the, the explanation that why can't we change our, our physical body if, if that's our self. And um, it could just kind of stumps me because um, um, yeah, I, I kind of rephrase it for myself in a different way. I'm not the owner of this body because of course it's a, it's a collection of, um, processes happening at, you know, ongoing processes. And, um, if I think I'm not the owner of this body, then it makes sense to me. I can't 
um, decide that I'm not going to be sick or that I'm not going to age. Um, it just, it's easier for me to understand that way. Yeah. <laughs> that. That's helpful, Lisa. I think that's true. That's a really good way to think about it, especially, you know, as we try to take these ways that the Buddha talks about things and he will say something like that too, in different places and say, we don't own this body. And that's, that's really helpful because um, what I was, what I meant to say is, you know, as we are trying to what the Buddha says and in the language that um, was really formed like 2,500 plus years ago and apply it to our experience. Like, how does this really how does this really relate to me and how I think and what I'm experiencing? And I think that's excellent because that's, that's exactly correct. I can't, I don't own this body. Another thing that's been helpful, I think is to think of it. It's on loan to me, you know, I mean, it's, I can't, I can't make it be different than it is. And I can't keep it around longer. You know, it's kind of got an expiration date on it. Um, I can't read it, but it's, it's there uh, somehow. I don't mean to be deterministic, but we know it's going to expire. And we can't stop it. We can, maybe we can make good choices to slow things down or to make our, our body more comfortable. But in the end, um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't own it. And they um, used to have t-shirts that, uh, Ajahn Chah's International Monastery with the words printing on the back, no owner. <laughs> so you see each other walking around like that <laughs> and you keep thinking, no, no owner. This, this collection of processes, you know, doing its thing. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. It's a really good way to look at it. So another thing that the Buddha often says about these five aggregates is, and here there's just the piece on form again, any kind of form at all, past, future, or present, internal, meaning like in, in my body or external, meaning, you know, this computer, this microphone, whatever it is that's, we've got handy, coarse or fine, so is maybe like really heavy material, um, you know, like this, uh, you know, physical, or it could be uh, something more refined or energetic. It's still, if there's a form to it, maybe, maybe devas, um, devas have a fine material body oftentimes, but it's still any, it still falls into this category, inferior, superior, something we think is really beautiful, something we think is really coarse or ugly, crude, whatever, far away from us or near to us, it's all the same. It's something we can't um, really own. And to think that all these things we think we own, like a house or um, land, how can we own land? You know, it's a social convention to kind of keep things a little sorted out, but it's uh it's we can't really own anything we're going to die and it's all going to go to somebody else it's it's all on loan
And then this is a bit of a deeper description the way the Buddha described form as uh, something made up of the four primary elements or derived from the primary elements of earth, water, air, fire, space, perhaps. No, four. So earth, water, fire, and air. And how does form come into being? Well, the body comes into being based on food. If you take the food away, the body can't keep going. And, you know, you could think of anything that's any material thing is based on some kind of conditions that when those conditions cease to continue, then the thing falls apart. The practice that leads to the cessation of form is simply the Noble Eightfold Path. So it's interesting to try to put that together. Like how is my practicing of right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right immersion. How does that cause the cessation of form? And I think in a very practical sense, um, we, we don't get reborn because we see correctly. We've, we've used the path to gain complete release from all clinging and suffering and all defilements. So there's no more arising of form in regard to this process. Can you think of any other way? Yeah, Neil? Um. I don't have an answer for your question, but I do have a question for you to answer. Um, this paragraph is a little confusing to me, and I'm sure it just has to do with language, but form originates from food. When food ceases, form ceases. And then it says the Noble Eightfold Path leads to the cessation of form. So the Noble Eightfold Path and food and the cessation of, I, yeah. it's, you see, I mean, the use of cessation in both of those mm -hmm. examples doesn't seem rel related. Yeah, okay, so this, Translating this word as food is um, Bandi Sajato's translation, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Ajahn Nyanamoli would translate it as nutriment. And, you know, of course, why wouldn't food be nutriment and vice versa? But then you can think in a more broad sense of what might be the, the fundamental supporting conditions for a form to exist. Like maybe you could even look at geology, you know, how rocks form and how they disintegrate again. Maybe we can even look at how form and energy interchange, you know, that kind of stuff to start to think more broadly that there are conditions that have to be in place for some thing, material thing to exist. 
And, you know, you can take a piece of plywood and put it out in the sun and the rain. And those conditions that keep it together as plywood start to break down and degrade. And then it's not plywood anymore. And so I think that any kind of supporting conditions can be this idea of food. But it's still a, a leap to see how the practicing of this development of mind and the development of our character through right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, um, developing of our, our, um, our understanding of reality, developing of meditation, how does that cause this to cease? It's coming at it from, a, it's, it's, it's revealing a different angle. And that angle is the one that makes it possible for us to be free from suffering. That this process of body and mind isn't just material and it's not just logical. There's a spiritual element, the way the, the mind develops to a point where it lets go of clinging to all things that are impermanent. And when we let go of the clinging, that's the actual cessation. Yeah, the body ceases when there's no food, when it, you know, it can starve to death. I've even known of people, that's how they end their life. You know, refuse to eat. So I, I guess I understand what you just said on some level, but I guess what's not connecting for me is that so nutriment comes from food. If you it's take one away, kind of nutriment, if, if we identified you, more kinds, even contact is nutriment. I'm, I'm sorry, I meant form comes from nutriment. Yes. So, and so there's a negative aspect to this. If you take away the nutriment, you lose the form or the form ceases. Mm -hmm. But then the next sentence puts a positive spin on cessation. You want cessation of form. Yes. Oh, but your negative spin on it is only because of the way you think of your clinging to form. Okay. So, all right. Now that, all right, that makes sense. I'm sorry if, if this oh, didn't- Oh, no, this is great. If this, this is this how we tease it Yeah, it feels like there needed to be a sentence between those two, the sentence you just said. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That's good. Yes, Carrie and Jaime. Yeah. So can I follow up on um, what Neil said? Um, so my understanding of form is, well, that form is basically a construct, like a conceit, uh, because actually there uh, isn't form and everything is process. So, so from my reading of this, um, what they're calling food here or whatever nutrient is the thoughts that we have that make us have this delusion that for, form actually has substance. And so the Noble Eightfold Path um, practices 
are to help you understand that this does not have any substance. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's so, so food, food isn't food. It's, it's even just the thoughts that feed this, this conceit of self. And by practicing the Eightfold Path, eventually we come to this understanding of, oh, that's right, anatta. This is all just delusion. So that's okay. my reading of it. What do you think? Yeah, nicely put. Yes. Thank you. It's a great way to look at it and, and realistic. I mean, you know, there's these two levels that the Buddha said. There are these two levels. There's the material level where, you know, yeah, I have a body. It's sitting here. It's, you know, <laughs> and there's the sort of um, kind of spiritual, otherworldly, you might say, um, looking at this from the perspective of what is what is really true. That form it's not on the on the on the mundane level it's not like it doesn't exist but in reality ultimately it's as you say something of an illusion so it's great thank you so then the buddha goes into this um other kind of um template that he uses for describing and trying to tease apart our identification with things and why we are so wrapped up in stuff. And he talks about the gratification, the danger, or here it's, it's translated as the drawbacks and the escape. And we're probably going to see something of what Neil and Carrie were both getting at here in this. So the pleasure and happiness that arise from having form that's the gratification. That's what keeps us wanting to exist and wanting to operate in the world and do what we do and have what we want and all that. And the, the, the fact that form is impermanent and therefore when it changes, there is suffering if we're attached to it. It's perishable. That's the drawback. Or in some translations, they might say that's the danger the danger of being wrapped up in form. Removing and giving up the desire and greed for form, that's the escape. And it comes through the cultivation of the Noble Eightfold Path in the very ways that you know, we were just talking about, to see through it, to see the reality of it. Yeah. Um, it's nice to be able to do things in a human body. And then um, if we're attached to that, we'll suffer. And it can be completely given up. And actually what the Buddha keeps trying to help us see is that the removing and giving up of that desire and greed is also relief from suffering. It's not just the results of the form falling apart, but it's actually even in the desire to do it, do things and have things and be things, that's already suffering. So those practitioners, ascetics and Brahmins, who directly know form in this way, how it arises, how it ceases, the practice that leads to its cessation, its gratification, drawback, and escape, they're practicing 
for the disillusionment, the dispassion, and the cessation regarding form. And they're practicing well. They have a firm footing in the teaching and the training. And then the next paragraph is almost the same. And they directly know form in this way, etc. And due to disillusionment, so they actually experience, they're not practicing for being disillusioned, dispassionate, and experiencing the sensation of clinging to form, but they actually experience it. Due to that, they're freed by not grasping. They're, they're very well freed. And those are the ones who are fully enlightened. They're the ones who are, they don't go through the cycle of rebirth again. So that pretty much lays it out. You know, the Buddha says this in a lot of different ways, but that's the whole, the whole process. And then I know we're getting close to the end, but I have this sutta here about Nakula Pita, who, which I really love. It's the first one in the book of the Khandas where I'll just kind of tell you the story. He's getting really old and he comes to the Buddha. Um, I'm an old man, elderly and senior, and I'm advanced in years, et cetera. My body is ailing and I'm constantly unwell. I don't even get to come to see the mendicants so much anymore. And can you instruct me for my lasting welfare and happiness? And the Buddha says, it's really true. Your body is ailing, for this body is ailing, trapped in its, in its shell. If anyone dragging around this body claimed to be healthy, even for a minute, what's that but foolishness? And we completely take this in and it's like, man, <laughs> um, that's the nature of the body. But he says, practice so that even though your body is ailing, your mind will be healthy. And then there's this interlude about how Nakulapita gets up all happy and then he sees Venerable Sariputta and, Venerable, and he tells Venerable Sariputta all about it. But Venerable Sariputta says, you know, you really should have asked the Buddha what he meant by that. How do you, how do, you do that? And then Venerable Sariputta talks about it. So how do you do that? How is a person ailing in body, but not ailing in mind? So an ordinary person, um, there's a bunch of stuff here about what, what def defines an ordinary person who's not you know, heard these teachings. They think their body is self or that the self has a body. So it's, you're owning it or that this, the, the body is in the self, or the self is in the body, something like that. Any of those ways of thinking of this eternal self related to the body. And we're obsessed with the thought, I am this form, this form is mine. And when it decays and perishes, then we have sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. And that's how we that's how we are both 
ailing in body and mind. But then how can we be ailing in the body, but not in the mind? So we've taken in this teaching and we don't regard self form as self. We don't think of it as me or mine. So when it falls apart, we don't have so much suffering. We don't have that sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress. So if you have a sense of what the practice is, um, Let's just read in the chat. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, Carrie and Heine. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for one line you said, it's nice to be able to do things in a human body, but not be attached to that. It's like, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. This is, we should and just enjoy this. So thank you. Yeah. And you'll know when you've crossed the line into being attached to it because you'll have suffering. And I think that's why the Buddha used that as the first noble truth. It's like we know when we've got this um, kind of imbalance and when we don't because it's painful. Yeah, Neil. So just toward the end there, a question came up in my mind or a thought came up in my mind and it might be too much to bring up in the last minute, but it occurs to me that the word anatta means not self, not no self. And I wonder if when the, so when we read that this is not, the body is not self, feelings are not self. It, but is the, the Buddha is not in fact saying there, whatever atta means, self is probably not the best translation because we have our own idea of what self means. It means, to me, it means like my personality, but that's not self. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me the Buddha is saying there is something that is atta. He is not saying that fact, it's just that all those things are not that yeah he specifically never really says there is a self or there is not well i mean okay so there are places where he refuses to answer the question of whether right. it's a self or not um you know the buddha never oversteps and and he can say for sure he and not that he doesn't know but it's like you can really see that the body isn't self, nor are our feelings, nor are our thought processes and mental experience. That's all constantly changing. And But when the Buddha talks about atta, he's talking on a material worldly level. Like we, let's see, is that quite true? It's the self. He talks about the self as the one who practices generosity. He talks about the self as the one who's practicing virtue. He talks about the self as an island unto itself. But that's really that, that you know, op, that operation of 
being in the world as a living being. But when he talks about this, this everlasting ongoing self, the way he says it is what we have in the morning chanting. All conditioned things are impermanent and all things are not self. Right. So that's not quite the same as saying, well, there's absolutely no such thing as self. But it certainly covers all the ground we can see. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Any final questions or comments? You know, I guess I do have one more from way back at the beginning when Steve put his comment in the chat. I had had a similar question. Um, that and those it, changes to the body, a yeah, um, three here and there, lose some weight. Yeah, I mean, so that would seem to contradict the statements in the sutta. You know, if if oh. if body is not self then you wouldn't, if body was self, you'd be able to change it, but you can change it. I don't know if that's what Steve was getting at, but that was my question there too. Yeah. And, and it's true that we can, we can have some influence over it. It's like, you know, we can, um, you know, quit smoking or change our diet when our health changes or something like that. And it can make a difference, but it's not going to keep you from dying. And it's not gonna. It's not gonna be like, oh, I don't wanna. I don't wanna be aging. <laughs> yeah, you might look better if you get that plastic surgery, but it's not gonna keep you from aging. You know. So I think that's really where it is. We have, we have influence over things. You know, and and the reason and because we can make choices and actually train the mind, that's how we can awaken. We actually can become more virtuous and more loving and more, um, um, I don't want to say generous in an, in an incredible way of, of really having unconditional love. We can actually do this, but we're not going to keep from dying. Elisa? Yes, I know we're already over time, but um, one thing I want to remember to bring up, maybe you could address it next time is um, if we continue with this, the statement we can be ailing in body, but healthy in mind just triggers a, a fear that I have. And I think a lot of people have about, um, you know, losing mental mm. faculties as we age and dementia, or just not thinking clearly as we get closer to yeah. Death. So. So here's the way I think about it. Um, the part that starts to erode, that causes that mental confusion, is actually the brain. You know, there is a physical change happening. And if you like, for one, Ajahn Brahm tells stories about the mind separating from the body at death. And how someone who's been, um, you know, unable to recognize anyone in their family for years, um, 
then they 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 are suddenly just before dying able to talk to them, you know, by by name, call them by name, and talk with, very lucidly. And this often happens, I guess. And so the Ajahn Brahm says that he thinks the mind is separating from the body, and so it's not hampered by the um, the way the brain is functioning anymore. And so, you know, it's it's certainly the case that in Buddhism, the Buddha saw the chitta, the mind, as a separate thing from the body. And when you hear about people, you know, the body dies and they can see the body and they, you know, maybe they're, they're resuscitated and they come back to, to their body and they can report on this, you know, those near death experiences uh, that could, that would be the mind separating from the body. And sometimes people do this uh, through practice, through meditation practice, the mind, the mind goes somewhere else. <laughs> and um, so there are, there are more going on than, um, so, so what if, what if we have dementia? What if the mind, what if we have, you know, it's, it's like whatever practice we've done and who knows what kind of practice we can do. I saw the chat where, you know, there's a lot of really present moment experience and, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know under what conditions we'll be able to continue to develop in our, in our mental training, but I think we just work with whatever the conditions are at the time, um, you know, keep a good moral virtue and not worry at all about it. It's like, whatever comes, we're going to just do the best we can. Yes, thank you. I guess um, we can take someone like Ram Das as a as a good example. After his stroke, yeah. slowed down and couldn't even speak, but he stayed with his practice. Yeah, I attended a, a talk of his in person after that happened, and yeah, he he knew he knew what he knew, you know, and um, yeah, so anything can happen in this life and it's it's really possible to learn how to let it go and be happy and free from suffering because we really don't you know own all this anyway thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.